0: to the Optimal Bio Podcast. At Optimal Bio, we don't just balance your hormones, we balance your whole body. Our conversations range from nutrition to medicine with an emphasis on wellness tips to support your health journey. If you like what you hear, find us on the web at optimalbio.com and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Optimal Bio's wellness podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Claudia Cometa. She is the CEO of the Patient Advocacy Advocacy Group. And as always, uh, we're going to have a conversation today and hopefully, uh, Claudia can share some wonderful insights uh, for us and um, make you, uh, hopefully people will be interested and we'll continue to do these things. And if you're not interested, then we'll figure something else out. So Claudia, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, why you're here today, how you got started and all that good stuff.
2: Yeah. So I uh, went the very traditional check the box route. Um, you know, I'd worked hard in school and decided I was interested in chemistry. And so went the pharmacy route, wanted to be in healthcare for reasons of just wanting to help people, but didn't necessarily wanted to go the um, medical school route. So I became a pharmacist. And, um, you know, I did clinical pharmacy for several years, over a decade and a half. And, um, you know, I always knew there was something. Else, I could be doing, or some more optimal way, I could be helping people throughout my pharmacy career, but I never really knew how to tap into that or where to look. And honestly, I was too exhausted to figure it out. So my time out of outside of work was mostly, you know, watching paint dry or whatever I needed to do to like chill my brain. Um, and then my dad got sick, so. Up until that point, I, you know, knock on wood, we were all relatively bumps, bruises, you know, nothing significant as far as being a patient in the medical system in my immediate family. And then my dad was diagnosed with lymphoma and all of that changed very rapidly. And I had never really seen the medical system from that side. Sadly enough, sadly enough, um, you know, over a decade and a half into it, now realizing what patients go through and seeing the extreme brokenness and the multitude of ways in which things go wrong and um, not always to the fault of the staff because the staff aren't being supported either and they're overworked and overburdened. And so the entirety of the system is um, failing everybody involved. And so when I saw that and walked him through that year of his cancer diagnosis and treatment, I just decided whatever this is, I didn't, I didn't have a, you know, cool term for it. <laughs> I just said whatever I just did for my dad, that's what I have to do for other people. And it wasn't, uh, you know, let, you know, let me go find the name of it or let me go get a degree in it. Or it was just, I have to do this because I am seeing. people in the icu bays around him who have nobody and i i can't i can't not do this work so i moved forward very imperfectly and um became you know became a patient advocate although that wording is probably inaccurate because i think you know most of us in the healthcare system feel that we have been advocating for patients for a while but i I don't think that I would have been as powerful of an advocate if I had not seen it from the other side of the table. So in 2017, um, my father sadly passed away and I funneled my energy into doing what I did for him for others. And so that's what I've been doing ever since.
1: So let's go back. So when did you have an interest in you know going into... You know, research or healthcare in the first place. Um, Like, where'd you grow up? You know, was there anything that uh, were you really good in science, for example, you know, when you're in high school? You know, kind of walk us back in time a little bit.
2: Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Florida, Central Florida, Mickey Mouse land. Although if you live in Orlando, you don't really go, (laughs) most people don't really frequent the the parks. Um, So I, I grew up in Central Florida and you know, I just always really worked really hard at school. I don't, you know, i even looking back now. I, I now that I have a child myself, I think I don't even know what my parents. I don't know that they did anything. I think I just was intrinsically motivated to do well, and, um, and so when it came time to start, you know, to go to college and start thinking about majors, I initially was interested in physical therapy, not really for any specific reason. I just I don't even know. I don't even know what sparked my interest into physical therapy. I knew I wanted to be in healthcare. Nobody in my family prior to that in any lineage that I have was aware of was in the medical profession. And I knew that I wanted to help people on a different level than that. And so I, I wanted to go into healthcare originally PT. Then I started talking to my chemistry professors and they were like, you know, you're really good at chemistry. You should consider pharmacy and you know, I'm coachable. So (laughs) I said, okay. And, um, kind of just moved forward. I mean, it was a, you know, two year prereq. So I, you know, I did all the work I needed to do. Um, and then it was a four year doctorate program and, um, you know, it, and uh, it came very. It, I wouldn't say it came easy to me at all. I worked very hard. In fact, I t- tell my son now all my gray hairs, which you can't see right now, uh, because of thankfully for hair dye, um, came during pharmacy school. So I worked very very hard. It was not easy, um, but but I definitely felt like it fit. And so um, you know, all, all, like I said, I, I was really good at you know trying to match my strengths, um, also my passion for wanting to help people, and. Also realizing that I wanted something that would be flexible when I had a family, and so that and so it did. It checked all of the boxes until I realized that just checking boxes is not all there is
1: to life. Sure. So, so after you get your degree, and um, you know you're out there, are you working at a doing a, the pharmacy thing at a retail, you know, chain store at that point in time? Are you in research? Are you in clinical research? Like, what do you what are you doing then?
2: Yeah, so I did an extra year of residency, which at that time and and still is mostly optional. Although you really are limited now, um, residencies were just kind of becoming popular then. And now, if you like, if you don't have a residency coming out of pharmacy school, your your options are pretty limited, and you're mostly limited to um, a retail position or um, you know a, a basic hospital position. But I, I went ahead and did an ambulatory care residency, so I sort of knew that I wanted to go a more clinical route. And I I knew mostly knew that I wanted to stay out of the retail setting. Um, You know, like I tell most people, you don't usually walk into a retail pharmacy and see too many people smiling. So I kind of knew, even without knowing too much, I knew that that wasn't really the route I wanted to go. Although um, my husband is a physician. And so he he, uh, moved us across country four times for all of his medical training. And so depending on where we lived, and what was available at the time, I did dabble in retail pharmacy. And I actually managed a retail pharmacy for a little bit. And so I did a little bit of that, but the vast majority of my career was spent in managing high risk medications like blood thinners. So I, you know, managed anticoagulants, um, d- you know, managed warfarin before there were, you know, umpteen warfarin alternatives now, but, um, that was, that was what was used back then. And, um, and then just served as a drug information source inside of clinics. So inside of like internal, you know, in medicine clinics, um, a lot of times I'd be in educational types of institutions. Where I would be a source, a drug information source for the medical residents and that type of thing.
1: Okay. I wish I knew you about 20 years ago because I had a, a company called Occam, and we were a clinical research uh, organization. So basically we we did clinical trial work for biotech and pharmaceutical, mostly in oncology. And we we're always looking for high quality PharmDs that, um, you know, had obviously interest in, they had a specialty in oncology that was even better, um, but they could help you know, with, with us um, winning business with clients and also, you know, overseeing some of the clinical trial work that was going on and what have you. And it was much cheaper. I shouldn't say it was much cheaper, but it was cheaper than, you know, going out and getting that MD, um, you know, to help us. So, um, so while you're doing that though, and you're, you know, you're providing uh, expert advice on um, different medications or what have you, are you you know, I was a believer, you know, just like you probably were. So, so, are you a believer at this point in time and you're like, yeah, this medicine's going to work and it's going to be great. And um, are you like, are you thinking, why is this patient on so many medications? You know, why do we have to, you know, who's really advocating or picking up, you know, this drug inter- interaction with this drug inter- interaction over here as, as that patient might be seeing a cardiologist, might be seeing a... Um, uh, a gp and might be seeing somebody else you know for you know some com- comorbidities that they're, that they're having at that point in time so where were where was your mindset back then
2: yeah um I, I would say that that definitely was a fluid situation and changed over time coming out of pharmacy school i would say i was a pretty firm believer and i think a lot of that you know and, and i would say the vast majority of people usually are because it it doesn't serve us well internally to have this, um, okay, I'm going to do whatever my professors told me, but now I don't believe any of it. And so it's hard. It's hard to work in, in an environment in the way that you've been trained when you don't believe. So, so I was definitely a believer coming out, um, did, you know, did all the thing? we role played in pharmacy school. You know, what do you tell people when they want to supplement, you know, all these horrible things and everything's horrible. And, you know, you want the prescription, you know, we role played. So I was like, I was ready. I was molded <laughs> and ready as most are. And um, then I just started, yeah, like slowly questioning things like, huh. And then over time, you know, like I said, my family was relatively blessed with health. And so I didn't see a lot from a personal standpoint of that doesn't really make sense. But I did notice in just my professional career of, huh, when we moved to Washington State and I was, you know, presented with a prescription for 600 methadone tablets for one month, I'm like, well, this doesn't, you know, and also on ADHD meds to stay awake and also, you know, and and seeing like, well, this can't be optimal in anybody's eyes. So what is happening here? And because I had worked in a variety of different states and environments and cultures, I started to realize just, you know, even just the localization of, you know, of shifts in how prescriptions were prescribed, medications were prescribed. And, you know, so I took that when I started seeing that I took it to the medical director of that clinic. And I'm like, and he agreed with me. He was like, I'm, I moved here from Texas and we have an opioid problem there. And this is like, you know, through the roof crazy. And um, so, yeah, then I, you know, I really just started realizing how far deep we are as a nation in over prescribing and, and how difficult it is for the current medical staffing to, start to question something like that if you're presented with a patient who is currently stable on 600 methadone I mean not really stable but has been on a maintenance dose of 600 methadone tablets a month who who wants to take that on and fix it I mean it's a it's a huge it's a huge burden to try to fix even though that you know person wants to fix it it's a lot. And so um, so it continues because, well, you're doing okay. Maybe we'll talk about this next month because this month we're talking about your blood sugar. Maybe we'll talk about that next month and next month. And it doesn't, it doesn't get talked about. It just gets continued. So, um, yeah. Uh, and then once I saw my dad, you know, I had never really been faced with any onco- personal oncology issues until my dad got sick. And then I just realized, you know, that's a whole different beast of... of um, questions needing to be asked. Um, so, so yes, um, it, it, it was a journey, um, of, of being the molded, do whatever I was told to do and say whatever I was told to say. And, um, now I'm like, I'm like the rogue pharmacist who I'm probably off the walls of the pharmacy school now. I don't, I don't know.
1: (laughs) So you hear these days, um, you know, one side talks about, you know, the undue influence pharmaceutical, you know, firms have on the FDA and, you know, they are donors in some of these big med schools and what have you, you know, looking back on it now, based on what you hear these days, I mean, was there uh, influence from pharmaceutical firms, you know, in your educational experience?
2: You know, all I can say from a from a personal standpoint is there were quite a few dinners I was invited to, and um, my husband has been invited to over the years, which that has waned over time. But I would say back in you know the early two thousands, when I was um, graduating and moving into my career. Yeah, I mean, there were quite quite a few dinners. Many many healthcare professionals who would say, "Oh, well, this looks like a nice fancy restaurant. I'll go and maybe get a CE." And um, you know, I was never presented with a trip, nor was my husband. Um, nothing nothing extremely lavish, but but definitely quite a few very expensive um, dinners to promote whatever drug it was that they were promoting. And um, I would say back then that was not questioned a whole lot. It, it was like the norm. Um, probably it was the step down from what, what was before that, which was more lavish gifts. Um, and even then, I don't think I I had enough tools in my toolbox to question or experience even to, to start questioning any of that. Of course, now that's, you know, not so much a thing anymore because there's a, a much, you know, stronger spotlight on that industry, but but yeah, I, when I look back, I start to see like yeah that the expenditure on you know the lunches for the physicians and all the things to to present this medication, um, yeah, it's it's unnecessary and over the top, and and it definitely shows the the wrong priorities that that this nation has of you know in healthcare.
1: Just from a out of curiosity, from a um, you know. Prescription, generic prescription to a, you know, non-generic, um, and with the Affordable Care Act back in, I guess, what 2012, 20 when it first went into um, into practice, is there, does the is the physician still responsible for writing that script, so to speak, or did they have to go to you know people like you, and then is there, you know, I always say follow the money. Is there you know, money that dictates whether or not it's, it's a generic as opposed to a um, you know a commercial drug. Um,
2: let me. So, can you restate it so I understand? There's a lot. There's a lot that goes into brand generic. So, I, I could go off on a, on a really large tangent here. So, I want to make I'm just sure I
1: I'm, I'm just thinking of the patient where, um, let's say, you take warfarin for example. It's probably been it's been on the market forever, right? So, you know, it's been generic. Um, but I also know that. You know, based on certain uh, FDA regulations, you know companies can come in and reformulate in certain classes of drugs, and then suddenly it's off generic for you know a year. Um, they can maximize their profits, and it goes back on. And you've seen that. I guess the EpiPen person, um, you know, the CEO got in trouble a few years ago um, with the four hundred dollar EpiPen, but there's a generic out there that's thirty dollars. And and I'm just from my own personal, you know, family experience with some family members. Um, you know, they're some drugs are generic and then suddenly they're back on, you know, uh, I'm, I'm using a wrong term, but I'll just say commercial and, you know, the price is, you know, exorbitant again. So, yes. I'm just wondering who dictates the, um, a, the ability to be able to prescribe, you know, a viable medication that works, um, but is also, you know, reimbursable, let's say, and or affordable for that patient
2: there's so many holes in the system. I mean, really the, the way that the system is built is a pharmaceutical company does all of the research and development to bring a drug to market. Um, they, they get the patenting rights for X amount of years, you know, decade plus. Um, and you know, that was initially intended to help them rebuild what they've spent into research and development and that others can't just come in now and just duplicate that, but not do the research, et cetera. So, um, so they come out. So then it comes close to patent releasing time. And so all the other, you know, all these other companies are like clamoring for, you know, I'm going to start making the generic of this medication. Um, and so they, you know, they get the generic approved. And so now you've got multiple generics of that brand. Well, you know, that original company or another company says, well, what if, what if we just tweak that a little bit and, you know, do an isomer over it or, or, or make a cousin of it? Um, and, You know, will show that it's even just a little bit better in studies, which we all know. You know, studies can be very, very um, deceiving, and even in peer-reviewed journals, there's always some you know nuance that that is in their favor. And there may have been a multitude of studies that didn't show any benefit, but you know, you've got one or two that did, and so that's what's going to get published and put in, you know, mainstream media. And so there is endless amounts of this happening within the industry. So they tweak it a little bit. It, as long as it's a new considered a new drug by the FDA, then now we're starting all over again. We have a brand new patent, we get x amount of years of patent protection and and it's, you know, a ton more money. And the insurance companies when they review which med- what their formulary is going to be, they're like, "Well, this doesn't make sense. Why would we cover this?" It's just a sister or cousin or or what, you know, a, a slight shift in the original medication. So we aren't going to cover it. But the physicians don't know that they're not. I mean, they would. How would they ever keep up with every insurance plan and every insurance plans formulary? There's no chance. So the patient goes in to get their prescription. Maybe the pharmaceutical company just came in last week and said, here's why this one's better. Doctors trying to, you know, do. I like to believe that the doctor, most doctors, are trying to do the right thing. Okay, so they're presented with this, you know, evidence that supports this drug over the other one. They think, well, why not? Why not give my patient an option to do something better if this is what this drug rep showed me? They have no idea. No idea what is now going to happen on the pharmacy end, on the insurance end, just all the drama that happens. Now they, you know, it's not gonna be covered. It needs a prior authorization, you need justification. There's never gonna be a justification for this medication, you know, because it doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't have been, it shouldn't even have Come out on the market to begin with. So, that's not going to be justified. And so, it's just a ridiculous amount of hassle. Um, So, some physicians are seasoned enough now and know, like, okay, this is probably what's going to happen. So, we're just not going to go this route. And we'll explain that to the patient. You know, there's some new ones out, but hey, they're not different enough. Your insurance isn't going to cover it. We're going to go with the generic that's available because I have no concerns over it. Now, with the brand generic discussion, there there are some times, I would say they're mostly in the minority of times, but there are some times when the inactive ingredients or the excipients in the the actual tablet, pill, capsule, whatever, um, they're going to be different because they they can be. So, the you know, the, the brand may have, um, you know, may... The brand tablet might not have lactose, and the the generic might have lactose, or whatever it is. Um, so it's very possible that somebody may not tolerate the generic, um, and but they do tolerate the brand. And in that case, you know, justification can be given to the insurance company, and you know, a good amount of times they will um, allow that because they have tried and failed the generic. But you would have to try and fail give reason and then get that covered. But just endless amounts of unnecessary drama around brand generics really all boiling down to who's making money and, um, you know, and and who just doesn't know how to guide these patients through this because the doctors think they're doing the right thing. They just, they don't know what happens at the pharmacy end.
1: So, like you, I lost my father to cancer um, back when I was 23 and... He died of lung cancer and I remember um, after his, I mean, they looking back at it now and being in the industry for, you know, 25 years in cancer research, um, you know, they, it wasn't that long ago but they, you know, he got diagnosed and then they went, immediately went ahead and did surgery. I mean, they didn't do any scans, they didn't um, of the head or, you know, bone or anything like that and he had already metastasized, but they didn't know it but they did the surgery, took his lung out and I remember first time we, I, I had an experience with an advocate, so to speak, but she technically was the social worker um, that was dealing with the family. And um, really, the only she was doing her best, um, but the only thing that she was really trying to tell us was, you know, your father's got about a 10% chance of, of living. And um, so, in her roundabout way during that time, you know, she was preparing us for the inevitable. Um, of course I thought, well, he'll he'll be in the top 10%. So, you know, he'll beat this thing, even though it was, you know, metastasized and stage four and all that good stuff. Um, and after that, it was quick, thank God. And, um, uh, you know, then I didn't really have any exposure until my grandmother. So my father's mother, who was in her nineties at that time, she, you know, went into independent living and, you know she was perfectly healthy for the most part, you know, with the exception of, um, you know, she had some heart palpitation or whatever. So, they started putting her on warfarin. On and, you know, of course, as you know, you know, every time you bump into something, you know, you got these bruises all over the place and everything else. And, you know, over time, she just got progressively worse, not because of the medication, just simply because she was older. And, you know, we had to then, you know, try to figure out where to put her into an assisted living facility and which one's good, which one's not. Um, and then, of course you know, as you know, you know, these elderly get into these, um, assisted living facilities and it's, you know, it's basically a menu of medication that they're on every single day. And I personally believe that at the end of the day, it's probably the drugs, drug interaction that ends up leading to demise more than it is anything else. And, uh, uh, and I always thought to myself, it'd be great to have an advocate where I could pay, you know, to be able to you know, figure out medications, figure out where the best place to go, um, interact with you know the different types of doctors, and so on and so forth. So, I assume you felt the same way, and therefore you have your own company at this point in time. So, tell us what do you do for that common family out there that you know went through an experience like I described, went through a personal experience like you described as well.
2: Yeah, all the things that you just said. Um, and you know, in, in a lot of ways, I do find it sad that somebody like me is even needed and I long for a day that I'm not because it seems ridiculous that you would need to have a s- additional layer in your healthcare that is overlooking everything. Cause you like to believe we all like to believe that the system's working for us and, and things are working, but the reality is they're not. So whether or not we believe that if that's the truth, <laughs> it's just not working. And so I guess the best way to explain it is by actual examples without obviously showing any identifiers. But, um, one of my first clients was a adult child. So, you know, my age, somebody living, you know, out of the state from his parents And his elderly dad, um, you know, just got sick, wasn't feeling well. Otherwise, prior to this, doing perfectly fine, you know, working out, working out stronger than I am right now. Just, you know, very healthy person, active. And all of a sudden, it started not feeling well. Well, they were living in... A relatively remote area, and didn't have access to a lot of great care in the immediate surrounding areas. And so, you know, when you go to the hospital in these smaller towns, you have to realize when physicians are at their their peak, and they're you know either coming right out of school or they're a couple years out, and um, you know they're gunners and they just they want to change the world, right? They aren't going most of the time to the remote towns they're going to large academic centers to further their knowledge experience education etc most of the time Again, it's never a blanket statement, but most of the time, the smaller towns are getting the people, you know, wanting, they're, you know, later in their career, wanting to come get closer to family, you know, maybe they're from that town of, you know, maybe they're going to run the hospital and they're just nearing retirement. Okay. So you have to, you have to just understand the climate of the healthcare system to realize it's not the same everywhere. It's just not, you're not going to get the same level of care, the same level of expertise at a large academic center as you are at a small center. So, you know, I'm, I'm understanding this and they don't, aren't necessarily because they were healthy before. It didn't really need a lot of, you know, complicated healthcare. So in any case, I'm realizing that we are quickly exhausting the options that are in a driving radius for him. And, um, you know, recognizing that, realizing that he's being dismissed for a lot of what's happening in his care. And we need to get, we need to get to a larger medical center, either where I was, which was about two hours north or where he could go, which is about an hour and a half to two hours south. So either way, we were going to drive about the same distance. He decided to come up closer to me, um, which was great because I could actually then you know, physically be in the hospital and visit. And, um, he ended up needing open heart surgery. He needed his valves replaced in his heart. And, um, he had a a very extensive infection on his valves. Nobody caught it. Nobody was going to catch it. Cardiology down where he was, didn't want to see him for, you know, another two months. And, and it just wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. And I, and you, you know, you realize at some point we don't have time to wait for to find somebody great near you. I don't think we're going to and I don't think it's we we need to just move. We need to drive. Um, And sometimes that means flying. But for him, it was a drivable distance. So he's perfectly happy, you know, called me after like new lease on life. Now I didn't do the surgery. But I knew how to get him to the care he needed to do so um, to have so that's one example. And then you know, throughout my career, every case is so extreme. And I'm sure you can understand so extreme, extremely different. There's so little that's the same, because there's just so many nuances for each person. But um, I was involved in another case where um, a very high functioning, um, you know, uh, technical worker, and you know, in her late 40s, no reason to be this ill i got called into the case and she had very extreme complications from a surgery and by the time i got to her she was in an environment very much like you mentioned um, with regard to the long-term care facilities and you know was like slumped over in a wheelchair in the hallway and was that was pretty much going to be her life um and nobody was really being proactive. It kind of became like, okay, well, this is where she's at. It's unfortunate. This has happened. And, um, you know, when I started really diving deeper into what's happened in this case and where were the balls dropped and, you know, we, we needed to get, number one, we needed to get out of that facility. That facility was awful. Um, and so, so, you know, put the, put the work into place and, um, she's, I just actually recently heard recently that she went back to work for the same company that she was um, originally with, which is fantastic because the system had written her off completely, which this was, she was just going to be, you know, basically a vegetable, which is terrible. So um, there's just so much that is missed so many errors that are made. And again, like I said, I like to believe people go, vast majority of people go into medicine because they want to help people. I don't think the system supports the staff and so they don't have the wherewithal and the bandwidth to do what they have to do. And the provider for that last client that I just told you about, I actually approached her, well on the phone, but I I was like, "Look, you know, she came in with XYZ deficiency. She's been here a month and has not received anything to correct that deficiency." And she goes, "Look, I I don't know what to tell you, but I I don't have any time to look at these things. Like I I'm overworked. The you know, person who was my partner is not here and I don't know what else to say, but it didn't get done. I mean, that's just, that's it. I don't know what to tell you, you know? And um, you can't even believe it until you hear it. You can't even, you just can't even imagine that this is what, but this is what's happening. And um, so I, you know, I, I, I hate to put blame on any one part of the system. I think the system as a whole is broken in so many ways that um, I don't want the providers to feel like, we're attacking them either, but somebody has to look out for these people. Um, So, you know, a lot of insurance systems, healthcare systems are putting advocates into place, but the issue with the advocate that's employed by these people is there is a conflict of interest, obviously. So um, although they will, there will be an additional layer of maybe, you know, eyes on things, they're only, they can only call out so much, without being in trouble, right? So, without calling out errors and putting people into trouble. So, you know, it's a, it's a step forward, but a really small baby step and not the best option. Yeah,
1: It seems like this problem has exploded in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. And, you know, in the old days, um, you know, your GP would, uh, figure out what's wrong with you, refer you to a specialist, um, Maybe get transferred to the specialist at some point in time, but then if you ended up going to the hospital, you know your GP or your specialist made the rounds in the hospital, and he or she was your doctor um, at the hospital. But now you have the hospitalists, um, so it's like everybody just passes the baton, right? And um, and that's I think where this giant void is. And you know, I have my thoughts on this, but I'm just curious for uh, on your thoughts with being in the system and what have you. I mean, is I know it's probably money driven as always, but was that, you know, what what was the fundamental reason why that whole thing changed? Was the physicians didn't have enough time anymore or, you know, what, what happened?
2: A lot of breakdowns. Um, insurance companies' reimbursements are, there's a lot of pieces to this. One is, the reimbursement from insurance companies is relatively low. So if a, you know, if an office visit is, I don't know, 150 bucks, the insurance company might, you know, it, it's a small percentage that they're going to get back from that. And so to, for the facility to maintain its, you know, all of its things, its overhead, its CEO getting paid, whatever, you know, all the things, um, then we have to see more people. We have to, it's, we have to double book. We have to, we have to see more people. So when I got out of school, um, concierge you know sort of primary care physicians were were a thing but you know they were very cost prohibitive to most people so you had to pay like several thousand dollars to to be a member of this concierge practice where they would keep a small number of patients and so that that was starting to become a thing because it was already becoming a small issue and now it's such a such a much much bigger issue that Direct primary care has grown out of this, which I'm a huge fan of. I think it's a great option because it's a flat monthly fee. It takes out the insurance company completely. So, you know, you pay, depending on your age, usually, let's say you pay $100 if you're, you know, 65 and over, whatever, a month, typically with no contract, um, and you have access to that physician. You know, technically twenty four seven, but they're probably not going to respond to you. You know about your prescription refill at three am. Hopefully they're sleeping, but um, you know you've got access to them. And instead of having four thousand patients per physician, now it's four hundred to six hundred patients per physician, which sounds already too many. But four thousand is more of an average of a of a traditional setting, and so. So, we're moving away from that into this type of a model. Now, that model also is potentially cost prohibitive to a lot of people. And so, that isn't accessible to everybody. But for those who could um, allocate that amount of funds, that's what would happen. And um, that's kind of what we're moving away from. P- Most people are who want to give better care or trying to move away from having any dictation of insurance reimbursements. And now I've got to see more people to stay alive and it's just a nightmare. Um, and they've got to pay staff to be the ones dealing with the insurance companies. And so it doesn't make any sense. So what if we just took them out completely had a smaller panel of patients? And so that's where we're moving.
1: In reference to your business, are you, when you're advocating for a family, uh, whether it's, you know, directly with the provider or the hospital or, uh, insurance companies, are you welcomed? Um, or are you, are you met with hostility?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm um, Italian, so like I never worried about that. But as I, I am teaching the future generations of um, you know pharmacists wanting to become and and non pharmacists wanting to become advocates, I realize that they're that they are concerned about this. I've never been concerned because I you know I I'm nice until until I need to not be nice, and so that's kind of my like I'm I can handle whatever situation I'm thrown. But I also realize that not everybody wants to do that or has the personality to be able to approach situations like that. Um, I have never gotten into like a drag down fight. Um, I ha- It hasn't gotten to that point. Um, I would say that most providers are, as I would have expected, a little bit confused at first. Like, who are you and what is your role? At first, they're like, okay, maybe she's a friend and they'll document in the chart, you know so-and-so's friend, Claudia, um, which is fine. I'm their friend too, but (laughs) they don't really understand the role and what I do. Um, And then some of them completely embrace it. Like, thank God, because now, like, if they don't understand something during this visit, I'm so glad you're here to explain it because I don't have the time to do it. (laughs) So great. Um, And you can fill me in and you can, you know, like sometimes I'll send them, you know, records to prepare for a visit. And they're like, that's, this is so fantastic because now I can actually do what I need to do for this patient when I see them. And so some are really embracing, some are a little bit Confused? I would say it's a very small percentage that are um, that are super against it, and and I usually tell my my patients, you know, that's that's a little bit of a red flag. But I will also explain to them where this is coming from. We are a highly litigated society in all aspects, but absolutely in healthcare. And so, new doctors are trained and taught in in school that whatever you, you're trying to avoid getting sued no matter what. So, um, you know, whatever you can do to not get sued. Well, if I come, you know, sometimes my clients are not most of the time, they're not near me. And so I'm, you know, on speaker phone on a visit or whatever. And so understandably, and I usually, you know, Try to prep my clients for this. Understandably, some are going to be a little bit concerned. Like, who is this? Is this Morgan and Morgan on the you know call with me? Like, who, who are they posing as an advocate? And so there's a skepticism out of the gate. Who is this person? Are they recording me? What you know, which you know, real. I always tell my clients. You don't ever record if you're if you don't say you're going to, but also the physician should not be super concerned about it. What are they going to say that they aren't that they're super concerned that you have a recording of? But you know, always let them know. But I always say I'm not recording. I'm just here. I'm I'm literally here to help this patient make sure you get the right information because they're overwhelmed with their sickness right now. Make sure I can answer any questions that they forget or don't remember of their care. And then if they don't understand what's happened during this visit and you don't have the time at the end, I'm filling it in at the end. And so, you know, we're prepping, we're debriefing. And so once they understand they're okay, but they're, I, I do think that they're the, the few that are, you know, against it or, you know, not super excited about it. It's usually because they have in the back of their head, that one professor who told them all you need is one, one huge lawsuit, you know, it's going to be on your record and you're going to lose your license. And so they see me come in like, Oh, this is it. This is what they said. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, also it could be a little bit of a, um, uh, not necessarily fear per se, but they know that you know what's going on, right? Um, so, you know, the and whereas a lot of the patients slash family members, um, they're not in the medical profession, they don't know. And, and you know, everybody can be selective in what they listen to and what they hear and what they take back and what have you. Um, yeah. I, I, I am kind of curious about that because in the world of commercial real estate, we used to, um, obviously rent space. And, uh, uh, for a while I did it on my own or had people in the company do it. And, um, I was told that you really should have a tenant rep. And I'm thinking, well, you know, none of these landlords are going to want to talk to tenant reps because they're going to have to pay the commission and, uh, they can go directly with, you know, the company itself and get a, basically have a better deal done. And, uh, it turned out it was the exact opposite. They actually wanted the tenant rep you know, to be part of this discussion because they could all talk their real estate lingo and, you know, get a deal done quicker and so on and so forth. So, um, that's why I asked that question and maybe someday, um, you know, you'll be in that tenant rep scenario where um, it'll be welcomed, um, where you can have a discussion with the physician and it, it won't be a problem. So, from a back to the lawsuit thing real quick, do you have to, when a family signs up with you, are there powers of attorney and, you know, all that other stuff that they have to, you know, uh, have you, you know, sign on to, and I assume you have your own liability insurance and everything else.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, great question. So I do, I do have my own liability insurance and I have a very detailed agreement. Um, I, I try to tell my clients it's an agreement, not a contract because you you know, you don't need to, you're not, you're not a gym member now for three years and now you can't get out of it. Um, so it's nothing like that or at t or whatever. Um, so... Yes. I make it very clear. And it's in my agreement as well, that if I'm not working directly and oftentimes I'm not, if I, if the payer is not my actual patient, um, and oftentimes, like I said, it's a family member. So I've had cases where it's the daughter of her, you know, her dad is in the ICU intubated. Clearly I can't, he's not going to be able to sign the agreement. Right. So I have to, at that point, get, some type of docu- legal documentation that says that they are the healthcare surrogate or the medical power of attorney or something where that person has given you the right to make decisions one of those decisions being to hire me into into their care if they don't have that and we are in a position where they can't get it right now because obviously you know the loved one's intubated or whatever I can't get involved. And I just, I can't legally get involved because if that person doesn't, wouldn't have wanted me involved and didn't give the legal right to their family member to make that decision, then I can't, and I don't. Um, And that's happened a few times where their, their paperwork just isn't, it doesn't exist and the person cannot um, execute it. Most of the time, thankfully, I think the word has gotten out that this is a really important thing to do. And so most of the time, people who have come to me have had that already in place. And so they just um, send me a copy of it and we're okay. But yes, that has to be in place.
1: So you don't offer, let's say advocacy light, where you're just providing advisory services to the family member. So you're legally not bound with everything, but you're advising, let's say the daughter in this case, to ask this, this, and this.
2: Yes. So um, I do it like advocacy light. I haven't called it that, but maybe I will. It's like Bud Light, but I'm kidding. Um, I'm not even a beer drinker, but um, so... I I have offered that. And I will, I do often tell people I can still help you in a limited capacity without getting, I won't be able to access any records of your loved one. And we're going to talk more from a general standpoint. And so, yes, you know, if you want to sit with me for an hour and you know, I'll talk you through the hierarchy of the system, who to contact, but I won't be able to physically do any of the work, but I will guide you through what to do. And so, yes, I have done that. Um, I probably say a good handful of times um, where I've just kind of walked them through how to navigate it themselves, but I can't actually get into the weeds of it.
1: And is there a certain family profile or patient profile that you primarily deal with uh, as your, your secret sauce, so to speak?
2: It's really all across the board. I would say what has been surprising is some um, that I wasn't necessarily expecting is younger entrepreneurs who, you know, left a corporate job, opened and started their own business with the intention of having a, you know, more flexible, lighter lifestyle and um, started working themselves too hard. And um, now we're facing, you know, difficult, scary diagnoses and at a very young age. Um, so I was expecting what I was expecting more of just based on, you know, experience and whatever was the, you know, adult child calling on their, you know, elderly parents, those types of situations, which I would say has probably been a good vast majority, but, um, but no, I've had um, pediatrics, you know, six years old. Um, I've had young entrepreneurs. It's literally all across the board. Um, and, and it really just boils down to who is, feeling like they have exhausted all of their options and is like, you know, I just need some help. I just need some help. And I just need to find it and whatever their search terms are, you know, sometimes I ask people, how how did you find me? you know, some people are like, I just searched pharmacist help. And I'm like, I don't know how I came up from that. But, um, some people do know the term advocate. They know the term healthcare advocate, patient advocate, but, um, not everybody does. And sometimes they'll learn it from their Google searching, but, but no, it's, it's all across the board.
1: And do you also provide referral services? For example, you know, you talked earlier about the family that's in a rural area and let's say they need to go to Mayo or Cleveland Clinic or what have you. Are you navigating that for them as well?
2: If they want me to. So what I tell my clients is I will get as involved as you want me to. So, um, you know, I just, I build by the hour. So I will, I will work within a monetary budget I will work with. And, you know, if, and some people are like, just, just do it. Cause I am done. Like I'm tapped out. So, um, so then in that case I will, and, um, you know, at some point what, you know, I'll get to a point where, where they will, as the patient have to step in and, and do the rest, but like, I'll get them, you know, connected to the patient coordinator of the second opinion that we're seeking, or, you know, I'll get them as far as I can get them. And then, and then they have to do their part. But, um, but yeah, so I will go, go as far with them as they want. And that is largely dictated by them. If they, if they're like, you know, let's not go that far, but just tell me what the next step, is. you know, so I'll just tell them, here's the next steps, you know, one, two, three, what to do. Let me know if you run into any trouble, then they take it. And then they call me if they run into any trouble.
1: Obviously you've been in the, in the, um, the healthcare world for a while. Um, in an optimal bio, uh, Dr. Brandon talks a lot about, uh, and there's data that supports this that our Patient population is getting sicker and sicker. Um, I assume you agree with that, and uh, if so, you know, are you? What are you seeing more of um, that you didn't see as much of? You know, when you first got into not only your business but before that, when you were a you know clinical pharmacist.
2: You know what I'm realizing is the interplay of um, mind and body more but I don't necessarily know that it's happening more. I just am more aware of it and realizing how little it's addressed and identified. And, um, and so, you know, there's a saying that the, you know, the issues lie in the tissues. And I think that there's some truth to that. Um, I, you know, I, a lot of people come into their symptomatology with, and I, and I have several clients where this is the case, um, you know, child significant childhood trauma or, um, you know, just difficult relationship dynamics in their life, whether it's parents or spouses or whatever. And the medical system is doing what it does, which is okay, you're coming in with, you know, these three pockets of symptoms. You know, your your heart. And then, okay, now you're you're tired. So let me send you the endocrinologist for your thyroid. And now you're the and so you've got like just, you know, all these specialists looking at just their little piece of the pie. And nobody is that initial questionnaire might have asked a few questions that nobody's reading it. And so nobody really even knows how to tie in you know, my notation on my clients goes back to like, tell me, tell me about your child. Like, let's go. And I'm not a therapist, but I I want to know what we're dealing with so that I can guide you to the right people because okay, I, I think this is, there's an interplay here of some factors that aren't being addressed. And so let's find the specialists who actually are able to do that. Because I know even from experience, and, and maybe you do as well, when my dad was sick, and, and we were in hospice. And, um, you know, that was pretty traumatic for me. And I was having all kinds of like, I'm otherwise healthy, I'm very attentive to my health. And I was, you know, I had a cyst on my on the base of my, you know, dominant index finger and, you know, orthopedic surgeons wanted to cut it out and I maybe would lose, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't think I'm doing that. So, I just, I went to acupuncture and, um, you know, once I worked through my grief and I went to some acupuncture sessions that has not yet, that went away completely, no sign of it, not yet to return. I mean, that's a minor thing, but I'm just, it just highlights how much our emotions are tied to how our body responds. And that's being largely missed, I would say. Um, and I see that in my clients, um, and, and so, and a lot of clients, you know, when once we've exhausted the Western medical system, which, you know, doesn't take too long to realize that that happens. Um, you know, a lot of them end up going to, you know, and I'll recommend let's, let's it's always up to them. I don't make their decisions, but I will suggest that maybe we take a functional medicine approach. Let's, let's take, let's look at another way of approaching this. Um, and then we start to get, you know, more labs and we start to realize we have significant deficiencies and, you know, some, some important vitamins and minerals and not, not just vitamin D, which vitamin D is super important, but you know, Beyond that, um, we might have some, you know, significant gut dysbiosis and, and just the Western system isn't, isn't made to deal with these things or look at them. And so I just, I think we, we really have, and I didn't know this when my dad was sick. I didn't know that if I didn't know any of it. Um, I just was like, okay, next chemo, next chemo, next chemo, that one doesn't work. That one doesn't work. And how many times do we hear a chemo? I mean, we could have an entire conversation about that, but I mean, how many times do we hear somebody say... It chemo doesn't work. I mean, that's like you know, the sky is blue. So, um, in any case, see, I can I can really go on a soapbox. You got you got to like rein me in. (laughs) So, but um, I hope I answered your question probably more than you wanted.
1: (laughs) No, no, that was good. So, um, but to your point about chemo, I mean, you know, being in the cancer research world for a while, you know, there were some good therapies um, that worked for specific you know types of cancers, but in general you know, the technology really hasn't changed in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. And as they say, the chemo kills you before the actual disease does. Um, the So, is the goal then in some cases where you you mentioned earlier, you're exhausting Western medicine, it's, it's to maybe get the patient on the right path, um, stabilize that patient or whatever word you want to describe. And then, okay, now let's look at, you know, maybe some alternative ways that might be able to eventually cure you as opposed to you just being on this maintenance, you know, for, you know, the next upteenth years?
2: Yeah. So, um, I would say the vast majority come to me um, sort of in the fire, right? And so, I'm jumping in the fire with them and we're in crisis mode. And I think Western medicine in general does a pretty good job in crisis mode. Like if we need surgery, if we need a spleen out, if we need, you know, our heart valves replaced, I mean, you know, the reality is, is acupuncturist isn't going to be able to do that. So I think we, we realize the strengths of the Western system and what stage we're in in our health. And if we're in crisis mode and we need the, the amazing, you know, advancements of the Western system, fantastic. Once we get out of crisis mode though, oftentimes what happens is we are not on a great track for long-term sustainability of health, you know, optimizing health, even sustaining a baseline of health. And and so, it's like, you know, well, we did your surgery. So, that's all we got, you know, unless you want another surgery. You want another surgery? Like, they don't... There's not a whole lot of options or like, you know, five more medications. So, once we're at that point, okay, we're out of crisis mode. We're out of the acute stage. Now, let's go... Let's see how how much we can optimize it. Because by this point, by the time people call me, they've like forgotten what it is to even feel healthy. They don't even know what it feels... what What it is to feel well anymore. And so, they've in some ways, accepted like, okay, we got through the crisis. Okay, well, then this is just my life now. Well, maybe, but maybe we haven't looked at all the options yet. And maybe there are some deficiencies you have and things that we can work on that would optimize your wellness. And so, you know, we, we move away from what Western medicine can provide us if they want to, I give them the option. And uh, we move towards you know, some other options. Maybe they have, they have chronic pain and acupuncture, even if it doesn't take away their entirety of need of opioids, even if it lowers it a little bit, you know, and even if we can just chip away a little bit, a little bit and get you to a better state. So, but in the beginning it's, we're, you know, we're in crisis mode.
1: I heard from a doctor that when they went to medical school, there wasn't one nutritious, nutritious course that was offered, nutrition course, not nutritious, uh, that was offered. And even today, just with all the knowledge that's out there, it just seems like a lot of the doctors don't, you know, think about nutrition other than if you're a cancer patient, for example, just making sure you get enough calories, but it could be through ice cream, it could be through processed meats, it could be through for whatever. And um, the question I have for you, with, of course, the exception of your husband, because I'm sure he's different than a traditional physician, but... With all the knowledge the the medical profession has, if they get sick, do they end up going the traditional medicine route as well or are they doing things differently that we should be doing?
2: Yeah, there's a lot to that. Nutrition is not it's it's getting better. I'm very hopeful. There's actually medical schools now one in one in South Carolina. And I'm blanking on the which school it is, but it's a school in South Carolina that actually has a lifestyle medicine track. And they actually have the medical students like growing their own food and they bring in chefs to show them how to make healthy food. And it's it's like a whole new world. So that that makes me very hopeful. But we're, I mean, that's like one of, you know, however many medical schools there are. So we're we're still a long way, but we're moving in the right direction, I would say. It's really, I think I, you know, kind of alluded to this in the beginning. And so it's really hard for people in the medical field, healthcare professionals to work one way, because that's what they have to do in the field, in the system they're in. So to work one way, which is medication for every ailment, and then a medication for every side effect of every ailment or every other medication. It's hard for them to do that and then leave and not believe in that. And now think, well, if I get sick, I'm going to do it a different way. That's a really hard mental space to be in it's easier to just believe, just hope to God what you're doing is right, because <laughs> I want to know, I want to feel like I'm doing right. They do want. I mean, I think they're good people, right? I think in general, you know, humans in this field want to feel like they're doing the right thing. They can't feel like they're doing the right thing if they think it's terrible. And if they got sick, they would do something else. So what happens is the Vast majority would would go to a traditional physician if they got sick and they most of them avoid going to doctors, period, because they, they don't want to be the doctor that goes to a doctor like that. They, they don't like to seek out help. But if they needed to seek out help, they would go the traditional route. Most of them. Some of them are starting to realize this isn't working. This isn't working. It's not working for my patients. And so it's not going to work for me either. So they're slowly trickling away. They're starting to like, let me just study this a little bit. Oh, what's this? You know, what's lifestyle medicine? What's this? And then they start, and what's functional medicine? And so they're slowly trickling away. Some of them becoming functional medicine physicians themselves. Some of them just realizing this isn't working. And then they, if they get sick, they'll seek others. But but you know, I would say the vast majority it's it's hard it's hard to work in a traditional system do things one way and not actually believe in it because you're you're having a hard time sleeping at night if you're in that space
1: well i think too you know, especially with these big systems, they have to follow a certain protocol too, right?
2: There's guidelines, right? So, there's these, you know, huge organizations, the, uh, you know, the Society of whatever, Infectious Disease Society of America says, if you've got this infection, you've got to treat it with this antibiotic, you got got uh, guidelines for everything. So, if you are not providing what's considered standard of care, which is you're not following the guidelines, then if that person gets sick because of whatever you decided to do, you're going to, how are you going to stand in court? you have nothing to stand on other than like, well, that was my intuition. That was my gut. That was my, that doesn't stand in court. So they have to, just to, to avoid being sued. They have to follow these guidelines. And so they they are given very little flexibility to do something outside of that, even if they feel that's the right thing to do.
1: And not to get into a vaccine discussion, but obviously we've seen in the last couple of years, a lot of pressure put on, uh, you know, with doctors trying to not necessarily force, but, influence, um, you know, vaccine uptake. And are they getting paid for that? Or is that just another thing where it's the system and they just follow the orders?
2: It's the system. Um, There's money being exchanged, but I don't, not to my knowledge, there's no, like doctors aren't getting monetary kickbacks. Um, There's plenty of money to be made, you know, at at the other end by the pharmaceutical companies, but but yeah, the vaccine discussion is a whole—it's a whole other beast to discuss. But um, I think it, it highlights the brokenness of the system and and how where the money goes, that's where the media goes, that's where everything goes. And so that's what we're hearing, that's what people follow. Um, physicians, you know, nurses, all all players of the healthcare profession have been impacted by having to make decisions that they may not have been comfortable with, but they had to, to keep their job to whatever. And then also if they aren't asking their patients, if they aren't doing what the system tells them to do, did you get a, did you get a vaccine, you know, and, and giving them the vaccines and and suggesting encouraging if they aren't doing that and their patient who maybe didn't want the vaccine, but, but you know, um, or, If that patient ends up not getting the vaccine because the physician tells them their concerns about it, if that person does not get the vaccine and then gets COVID and then passes away, again, there's the potential for a lawsuit because you did not give that vaccine that could have saved that person. There may have been a very legitimate reason. Maybe that person has a history of Guillain-Barre syndrome and you know, there could have been a legitimate reason. It doesn't matter. (laughs) That's the sad thing is it just doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. And I know you can always sue for anything. And I was just thinking during this whole time that, you know, some patient comes in, doctor, they give their spiel and then patient says no and signs a legal document basically saying that I'm, you know, giving you and I'm identifying you um, for any liability around this. And um, But the the puzzle, the bigger puzzle um, before the vaccine was just the fact of this protocol that came down from on high on how to treat COVID patients, which was you know, if you feel bad, you know, go home. And if you get really bad, come in, and you know, and then we'll we'll try to take care of you. Um, but there's but, but there's no in between. And then some of the, the the maverick doctors out there, so to speak, were you know treating and having success, and you know they were basically taken to the woodshed for the most part. So to me, that's the more puzzling thing that um, still nobody seems to want to answer at this point.
2: Yes. Yeah. I did a few podcast episodes with a physician who I, he literally is like fallen off the face of, I don't know where he went, but he was, he was trying to be the voice of reason and saying, here are some things that we can do. And I immediately went on his protocol <laughs> You know, I was taking my quercetin and my vitamin C and my vitamin D. And, um, and I think he got so, you know, canceled or whatever, you know, the terms are these days. And um, he just stopped talking. Cause it was, he's like, I, you know, he, I get it. You, you know, you want to, you want to share a different message until it it's just too much and, and you can't handle it. Like the kickback is too much. And so it's unfortunate.
1: So tell us about your podcast. Uh, what kind of guests do you have on? What are you trying to get across?
2: Yeah. So um, I'm about four years in, I took a short sabbatical recently because we um, just moved and I was just um, in a tumultuous time of life, but um, it's called minding wellness. And I basically bring on guests to Educate and spread awareness of alternative modalities. So the majority of the time it's, you know, it's somebody who does energy healing or somebody and and I, you know, I I try to rein in the it's not like completely not evidence-based woo-woo. So um, but it is information um on treatment modalities that have helped countless other people. You know, I brought on a um a hypnotist, which I've never done hypnotherapy and Five years ago, I would have said that's crazy talk. And I said that on the podcast, like I'm, I'm trying to be really open minded. But to me, this is it's hard for me to wrap my head around what you do. And so but I want people to know what options are out there. And I want to ask the hard questions of my guests of, you know, what, what is what is this doing? What, What kind of it? results are you seeing? And what is the scientific um, reasoning and justification behind this? And so um, I just, I bring on a lot of guests. I also bring on a lot of patients who just want to share their story and what has happened and what has helped them in the struggles that they've gone through. Um, and I, you know, I, I actually have brought on a few um, controversial guests about the vaccine, Dr. Polevsky and um, Moskowitz and a few who have um, shared their their different views. And um I brought on Chris work from crispy cancer. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, you know, he has taken a different route for, uh, he took a different route for his treatment of his colon cancer and, um, is spreading awareness of that. And so, um, just a a variety of topics, but it's all pretty much mind, body, spirit, um, is the, is the, is the goal, but also, um, things that you wouldn't expect to hear from a pharmacist, (laughs) I I have brought on zero pharmaceutical manufacturers, (laughs)
1: And they're not, you're not sponsored by them either.
2: (laughs) I'm sponsored by nobody. Yes. (laughs) Correct.
1: (laughs) So if one wants to take a listen, where, where, where can they find you?
2: So minding wellness on any of your podcast platforms. So my um, website is peaceadvocacygroup.com, which is super long, but you know, hindsight, hindsight, I could have made that super easy. Like all the, you know, cool, just one name things, but it is what it is. So P E A C E advocacygroup.com. All the podcast episodes live there but they also live in all of the traditional um, places. So, you go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you go, just search for Minding Wellness.
1: Fantastic. So, we always ask our guests to give us five takeaways. Life advice, you know, ex- based on your experiences, doesn't have to be life advice. It could be workout advice, diets, whatever. Um, so, the floor is yours.
2: Mmm, Five. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I just thought about when I interviewed Chris work and I said, if you were going to go, cause he's really lives a re- really nutritious lifestyle. If you're going to go to an Island and you can only bring one food, what would you bring? And he said, broccoli. So eat more greens. That's what Chris work says. I know that would not be my first. choice. Broccoli is a very love hate thing. And I'm on the hate spectrum, but I try, I try really hard. Cause I know it's, I know it's so beneficial. Okay. Eat the rainbow is number one, which I know has become cliche. And, but I can tell you from, being a kid who never ate vegetables. And I mean, my parents like, they're like, she doesn't like vegetables. So we just don't feed her vegetable. And they were not the parents who were like forcing it down my throat, which I think opened my eyes later to not have, you know, a, a weird emotional feeling about it. I just was like, I didn't like it then, but let me try it now. Um, I have read enough, learned enough that what you put in your mouth is either going to harm you or it's going to hurt you. And you're so much better if you're, if you're consuming the vast majority and you don't have to go fully plant based and like completely get rid of meat or whatever, you know, unless you've got a specific diet for yourself, I just say, be more plant forward, just whatever you can do to get more plants in your diet, even if you want the occasional hamburger because people feel very restricted by all of the rules these days. So, um, so diet is number one. And I don't even like the word diet, just increasing the nutritional value of the foods that you consume Um, with regard to your body whatever you can do to move it. It doesn't matter if all it is, is walk down to the end of the street, then walk down to the end of the street until you can walk a little bit further, but move your body because a body motion stays in motion. And that's just the reality. And I think, I think our culture, you know, with all this CrossFit and people feel like unless they, unless they do these crazy wild, you know, Ironman triathlons, whatever, then what's the point? But I've spoken to, and I interviewed a doctor on my podcast who he's like, he started this walk with a doc program and he's like, just walk. That's all you have to do. You don't have to go, you know, if you don't want to go lift weights or you don't want to do a triathlon, you don't want to swim, just, just walk. And so he walks with his patients actually show up and he, and they walk with him, which is great. So nutrition walking, um, I would say third, and this isn't really no order, although nutrition is really important. So we'll just keep that first. Um, You know, what you consume in your mind is so, so important, arguably sometimes more important than even what you're consuming by your mouth. But um, our mindset can make or break us. And oftentimes what I work with with my clients is their mindset around their health, the the vision that they have for their health, but also their mindset working with the medical teams. Um, A lot of times they are taking a very, you know, passive approach, or they don't feel like they have any control in the situation. And they're just going from visit to visit to visit waiting for the next, you know, directive or, you know, demand of them or whatever, or the next prescription. But the way that you approach healthcare and you and your role in it is super, super important. Um, and so your, your mindset around your healthcare, and then I'll say fourth, I'm going to add mindset again, just your mindset in general in your personal life as well. I tell people, I don't even, I hardly ever have the TV on. If you're all day consuming news, you're consuming negativity because that's what sells. That's what the media is selling you. And so if the TV is on, I'm confused. If the TV is on in my house, I'm like, who's watching this? And does it need to be watched right now? Because otherwise I don't want it on. There's nothing of value to me on the TV. And so I'm usually listening to podcasts that are very like, you know, tailored to what I want to listen to information is fine. But when it's twisted in a negative way, um, you're consuming that all day, and you are living your life out of fear all day long, we're, we're afraid to do anything the media tells us to be afraid of. And so um, it's so, so important to be filling your mind with positive things and not, you know, Pollyanna, ridiculous things, but just just like, in general, life is pretty good. We have bumps and bruises, and we have obstacles. But most of us are living a life that many in other countries would would only pray for. And so, um, and then fifth, I would say um, gratitude. Have some type of a gratitude um, slash potentially meditation if you want to do your gratitude through meditation, but some type of a gratitude practice. It doesn't have to be, you know, something at 5am in the morning or, you know, some morning routine that somebody told you to do, but have some time in the day. And I practice this with my son, you know, as soon as your mind starts spiraling, what can I be grateful for right now? Cause you can't live in anxiety and gratitude at the same time. So it's a quick switch that doesn't take you, you know, going to the Tibetan mountains and meditating. You can quickly switch if, if I can just think of three things that I'm grateful for right now, all of a sudden you like forgot what you were anxious about. So I could probably go on and on, but there's, 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 there's are some.
1: Nah, yeah, it's great stuff. I uh, do you have an Instagram handle.
2: Um, I'm not super active on Instagram. I do. Peace Advocacy Group is on there. I'm not super, super active. I've been encouraged to be, um, but you can find me, Peace Advocacy Group on there.
1: All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen. LinkedIn is
2: the better place to find me.
1: Sounds good. Claudia, thank you for everything today. You've been a great guest and best of luck with uh, your business. And um, because the more successful you are, the more help you're going to give the patients out there to hopefully become healthier and better as well. So thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me on, Jim.
0: This has been a production of Optimal Bio. Optimal Bio is CEO, Tyler Brandon, podcast host and partner, Jim Baker, medical director, Greg Brannan, production assistance by Core Media, Beth Gravencourt, administrator, Kevin Duthu, executive producer, The podcast can be found on our website, OptimalBio.com, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our theme song is Sunwave by Paradiso, provided by Epidemic Sound.